Hello, and welcome to Right Care Baptist. I'm Jake Lancaster here with Henry Sullivan, and this week we're going to be talking to Marianne Ivey about infection prevention. Marianne, welcome to the program again. Thank you, Dr. Lancaster. So this week is Infection Prevention Week. Uh, I know you're very excited, and this week we're actually not going to be discussing uh, infection prevention in relation to COVID-19, but really wanted to get just into a deeper discussion on infection prevention in general. So just for our listeners who may not have listened to that that first episode, can you just introduce yourself and uh, just tell us a little bit about infection prevention? Yes, um, I'm Marianne Ivey. I'm the system director uh, of infection prevention. So I work with the infection preventionists and uh, other, of course, all of the other staff and, and uh, C-suite individuals uh, throughout the organization. And it is my great privilege to work with infection preventionists. Um, I was a, the director of infection prevention for the Regional Medical Center at Memphis and then also uh, a small IDN in Virginia prior to coming um, here to Baptist. Great. Henry, do you want to kick us off? Yes, uh, and Marianne has done a remarkable work for Baptist since, since coming in our organization and, and is teaching us all about our opportunities to improve our infection prevention program for our system. Marianne, next, the, the, the airing of this will be during Infection Prevention Week. Would you mind just giving us a little bit of a, the history of infection prevention, the movement, if you don't mind? Well, certainly. Um, infection prevention actually came into the spotlight, I'll say, uh, at first in, in around the, in the early 70s uh, when there was the first platform for public reporting that was introduced, which ultimately became our current system, which is NHSN. Uh, and that was the first time that infection preventionists were required to report uh, any nosocomial, as we called them then, uh, infections outside of their organizations. And then uh, APIC, which is our professional organization, was formed around that same time. But uh, it wasn't until around 1999, I'll say, when we got into preventable harm and into Tuera's human and all of those concepts that infection prevention really took off and in, in it was well it was called infection control first of all before before that and referred to as infection control and it became infection prevention because we took on a prevention stance and started to do more uh, mandatory reporting as well as uh, research which was focused on the prevention of HAIs and uh, with the advent of the Obama administration the Affordable Care Act uh, came such uh, entities as um, value-based purchasing and never events and things of that nature. So uh, that's really when infection prevention uh, came up from the basement to the top floor because uh, everybody then was uh, hyper-focused on public reporting and particularly um, monetary penalties that were starting to be assessed for HAIs, and then of course out of that grew the uh, antimicrobial stewardship movement, which we are now engaged in. And so it just continues to grow exponentially every year. So if I could back up to your initial comment, the to Air is Human 
that was a publication that came from the Institute of Medicine, was it not, Marianne? Yes, yes. Mm-hmm. And, and that and that's sure. really what kicked off your the the growth and evolution of infection prevention was was that uh, work from the '90s from the Institute of Healthcare Improvement and the Institute of Medicine. Is that is that really what kind of kicked it up to the next level? Well, it 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 brought the concept of just reporting numbers basically uh, together with prevention of patient safety events and all patient safety events, but of course um, the hospital-acquired infections that started coming to um, the in, into light, just how widespread they were and how many uh, patients were impacted every year. As we've gotten more sophisticated in infection control now, prevention. Um, are there are there specific requirements for infection prevention or infection preventionist? Are there levels of knowledge that are to be gained and recognized with certification? Can you can you t- t- teach Jake and me something about that, please? Well, um, most infection preventionists are registered nurses. Certainly not all of them. Uh, we have many uh, wonderful leaders in infection prevention who are medical technologists. Uh, and run programs, and they they bring a, a very different uh, view and flair to it. But uh, really, those are the two disciplines that generally go into infection prevention. And uh, yes, there is an expectation that they be certified um, in infection control, and uh, we that usually takes place somewhere around two to three years into a person's. Uh, tenure as an IP because it takes that long to amass the body of knowledge necessary to pass the test. The test is quite rigorous uh, and so usually two to three years after starting infection prevention, people, uh, the, the expectation is there that they become certified, which really is an entry level uh, into competency. So uh, there's an APIC competency model which takes you from there. So there, there's research and, and growing in leadership skills and uh, really growing as a change agent and learning how to uh, influence people uh, perhaps that you have no direct control over. And so it's, it's really a, quite a complex field and um, so there's plenty of growth. I learn something every day in infection control and, and that's what kind of makes it exciting. Oh, yes. Uh, trying to influence people that you have no direct control over. Uh, I think we all <laughs> try to do that in our, in our uh, individual roles. But you, you mentioned APEC. A- is that APIC? That's the Infection Prevention uh, Governing Body? That, that's our professional society and the Association of Professionals in Infection Control and Epidemiology. And uh, physicians and others are members of that organization, but it is uh, our professional organization as infection preventionists. Gotcha. And the physicians, I guess, or, or others that would make that up, are, are some of them epidemiologists as well? Um, or yes. Disease and then, of course, there's, right. And of course, there's SHEA, which is the physicians group, and, and they really, um, APIC and SHEA um, interact extensively. And many people that are members, many infection preventionists are also members of SHEA and uh, back, back and forth. So, uh, the two groups intermingle and work together on research and issues around infection control. That's great. 
uh, definitely, you know, learn a lot of, of acronyms that, I, you know, there's there's a bunch of medicine that are out there. It's always good to, to learn about some of these other new ones that are kind of outside of my wheelhouse. But back to uh, to Urish Human, that is definitely my that is definitely kind of the article or the report that uh, brought my attention to infection prevention. And some of the statistics from that report are just pretty remarkable, such as about five to ten percent of all admitted patients will require will acquire one or more infections. Um, do you know is that still the case now, or or how has how has the the movement and hospital acquired infections changed over the last twenty years since it's come out? Uh, the most current statistics, and they they do lag uh, significantly, is about yes, about one in every. 25 to 31 hospitalized patients in acute care settings will have at least one hospital-acquired infections. And there's still right around 100,000 deaths per year from hospital, preventable hospital-acquired infections in the United States. So it's still quite a problem. Um, I think how it has uh, morphed and changed is that early on, of course, we were focused on device-associated infections primarily, which Clapsy, Cauti, a ventilator-associated pneumonia. Um, and, 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 and the like. And now, of course, C. diff and other uh, C. diff and also MDROs, such as um, our carbapenem-resistant organisms, uh, have, have come to the forefront as being responsible for uh, a large number of HAIs throughout the year. So um, of those that are represented in those statistics, uh, C. diff being very significant, uh, about 12% of all HIIs are C. diff related. So that focus has shifted just a little bit. So that is a that is a patient that came into the hospital without a diagnosis of C. diff who acquires it while in the hospital, presumably from uh, another patient that is there or the, or is it coming from, you know, the healthcare worker themselves that is spreading it to that patient, uh, even though that healthcare worker is not the patient. How how is that flow occurring? I guess within the hospital. Well, hospital acquired C. diff is is strictly um, the reporting of it is strictly based on a time frame, and so if a person gets to the fourth day of admission and suddenly uh, exhibits signs and symptoms of C. diff. Uh, then that's counted as a hospital-acquired infection. That could be something that, that we spread to them in the hospital, and certainly that is an opportunity. Um, but also we have to consider that many of these cases are truly uh, community-acquired, or they were hospital-associated to start with, and then the patient goes back out in the community, and it just um, kind of becomes a mad circle of, of being readmitted, re-exposed to antibiotic pressure, and um, recurring C. diff. So recurring C. diff is a huge issue. Um, and in our nursing facilities, particularly, that is uh, an area where we, those patients go back out to a skilled nursing facility, um, and uh, that C. diff is kind of just uh, lying dormant, is not infectious anymore, but then they come back into the hospital and uh, are once again exposed to the antibiotic pressure and will exhibit uh, C. diff symptoms again. So for a hospital-acquired C. diff patient, what is the role of infection prevention on, I guess, 
you know, right now we're hearing a lot about contact tracing for COVID-19. Are we doing that sort of same process for C. diff patients uh, to try to see if it was acquired from another patient in the hospital or another healthcare worker that spread it to them? How does that process work? Yes, uh, we always, what we call bed trace all patients with C. diff. So who was in the bed last, you know, our, our uh, these days we have computer programs that help us with that. That used to be a manual process, a very laborious, but now we can go back and, and check to see what patients have been in the same bed or uh, in the same area. Uh, it, it's, it's still very difficult to trace hospital-acquired C. diff uh, from direct patient contact or spread. We know what happens, but it's still uh, difficult to prove. Uh, we try. We we hope that we don't see big any big clusters, but it does happen occasionally where we'll have a, an area that becomes contaminated, uh, and uh, we'll have to be uh, shut down. Doesn't happen often, um, but you know terminally cleaned. But environmental cleaning and disinfection and hand hygiene are the main weapons we have against C. diff. Um, that's already been acquired. Of course, we can go into antibiotic stewardship and all of those other. Um, precursors, but once a patient has C. diff, uh, it's imperative that environmental services uh, and uh, clean those rooms uh, per specifications and that they are thoroughly cleaned, since C. diff can su survive on inanimate objects for six months or longer. So it becomes very important to uh, clean and disinfect rooms that patients that have had C. diff have been housed in and equipment and all of those things thoroughly and of course, hand washing with soap and water, because we know that we that that things that these organisms get moved uh, when those things don't occur. So, Marianne, hand washing, and if there is a oh a secondary benefit, if you will, from COVID nineteen, it has been the sharp focus on hand hygiene, uh, and and I think perhaps you, you're you're pleased with the uptick and the interest and focus on hand hygiene, but talk. Talk to Jake and me a little bit more about hand hygiene um, and its its effects on infection prevention. And what do you see as some of the challenges challenges around proper hand hygiene and and hand washing? Well, hand hygiene uh, and environmental cleaning and disinfection are really kind of equal in their impact uh, on hospital-acquired infection. Um, uh, it's funny because I, I once read uh, an article where they were talking about, well, you can't do a study to decide which one's more important because you can't withdraw either. And so um, it's, it, it, they're equally important. And the concept of cross-contamination from the environment is extremely important. So um, Hand hygiene is, of course, as we all know, is the number one way to prevent infection. And we all know that as professionals, but it's, there's a huge behavioral factor here. And um, people get busy, uh, we, don't, we have processes that we put in place, uh, room construction, there's so many things. So there's barriers from the way that the dispensers are arranged, how many we have, are they empty, um, are they conveniently located? And so there's a whole lot of, of barriers that we have to overcome in the environment. But then also the bigger issue is that behavioral issue of, you know, I'm busy, my arms are full, um, 
you know, I'm racing into the room to resuscitate someone or, or whatever the perception is that um, the individual perceives as a barrier to doing uh, efficient hand hygiene. To tag onto that, so I'm not sure if you if you saw, but Apple now has a um, a software program on the Apple Watch which will be triggered when it notices if you're trying to wash your hands, um, and it will display a countdown for 20 seconds. And I, I have this turned on in my phone, and the the amount of time that it takes to, to actually do it properly is is, is a little surprising. Um, you know, 20 seconds seems like a short period of time, but, you know, I have definitely caught myself um, finishing up a little early on multiple occasions just just because it seemed like it was it was taking forever and I had had to move on. But, uh, you know, I think that is it's a good visual reminder of what you're supposed to be doing and certainly hopefully helpful in going forward in the future. But certainly I, I think that 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 time pressure, that time commitment to just uh to move on is there. I don't know if you have any other comments on it. Well, I do in that washing with soap and water uh, is wonderful and certainly required with um, diarrheal diseases and, and, and in COVID in the community. But in the hospital and healthcare environment, that's why alcohol-based uh, hand sanitizers are preferred because they are faster. Um, you know, there's that residual uh, kill effect on the hands as we go from one racing from one room to the next and just the convenience because as you're saying 20 seconds is a long time uh, to wash our hands over and over and over again so that's why the hand sanitizer is so important as well as a tool in in healthcare. Marianne, I'm, I'm, I'm fast. If we could change gears ever so slightly, I'm, I'm fascinated by this surveillance process and and that which all the IPs in their in their work for infection control uh, perform, um, can you describe to us what's in what's involved in the surveillance process? What do you what does that mean? What do you do? Well, surveillance is a broad term. So most people think of surveillance as something that I do at my computer when I'm looking at cultures and. And while that's true, that is a piece, um, there's so many other factors. So if I'm looking at a patient, um, I, I, I need to go out and read notes, and I might have to read operative notes, and I might have to look at all different kinds of documentation, outpatient documentation, history, um, and previous events. And then I might have to go to the floor and interview the staff, or talk to the physician about the chest x-ray, or uh, just a myriad of things. And then, of course, uh, in, in, in doing all of that, we're looking to see if a patient meets a criteria for an infection that are CDC-based criteria. But the bigger part to me of an infection preventionist job, uh, surveillance like we just described, is only about 25% of what an IP should be doing. And people's heads always spin when I say that. But the bigger part of surveillance is that I have to be looking in every environment that I go in uh, for the things that I know are important in that particular environment from an infection prevention standpoint. So if I'm in an ICU, um, you know, what am I looking at? I'm looking at 
uh, the dressing maybe, I'm looking at the Foley, I'm looking at the ventilator, um, I, you know, I'm looking at the cleanliness, I'm looking at the holes in the ceiling. I mean, there's just a myriad of things I might be looking at as I'm walking through one, one place. Um, likewise, infection preventionists are expected to master the guidelines and requirements for places like sterile processing. Um, thousands and thousands and thousands of guidelines that uh, come into play there. And so what does an IP need to know in those environments? And that takes a long time to learn. Uh, the kitchen, people don't think about that. Uh, you walk the kitchen and, and looking at the sterilization process, the cleaning process, and the, the settings, and uh, just so many things, the food preparation, you might Look at the sterile storage area. So you just go from place to place to place. Um, the morgue. I mean, there's a million places that we are we're responsible pretty much for everything in the hospital um, from an infection prevention standpoint. So sometimes uh, that's a little daunting and overwhelming, and being sure that we have access to the latest guidelines and the latest joint commission requirements and things of that nature. And so it's pretty big. But all of that goes under surveillance, and um, as you, that's why it takes a long time to become proficient in, in those activities. So, so Marianne, but just by that description, though, your work intersects with the facilities engineers and those responsible for environment of care. How do you work with them uh, in, in infection control? Well, it's imperative that we work closely with facilities and uh, environmental services. Uh, those are two areas that are just just so important. Um, for instance, with facilities, it is a CDC requirement that um, all construction projects, um, any time that anything is done in a patient care area, anywhere in the hospital, an infection control practitioner has to have eyes on that. And if it exceeds a certain risk level, the IP has to sign and approve the plan. Um, you have to walk the area with the contractors. And then when the construction is going on, you're expected to be down there every day looking at the barriers, being sure there's no you know, dust or water or whatever the issues are. Um, and that the uh, risk assessment guidelines are being adhered to. So tremendous amount of time uh, with things like that. And with EVS, I mean, you, you, there's no better partner to an infection preventionist than a wonderful environmental services uh, team uh, because, like I said, the hand hygiene and environmental uh, cleaning are equal in their impact uh, on hospital-acquired infections. So, so let's let's go back then, Marianne, and, and I guess in the last few minutes, uh, take us through an outbreak investigation. I know we've been so focused on COVID nineteen, but let's say in a particular unit, we've had um, uh, two or three outbreaks of C difficile. Let's talk about C difficile again. How would you go about um, uh, investigating an outbreak? Such as that, we'll call it an outbreak of C. diff on a particular unit. And let's 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 pick out a, a, a hemonc unit that where we have vulnerable patients uh, potentially bringing in as a as a community onset, given their vulnerability. Uh, but now, boom, we've got three or four cases on that hemonc unit. Walk us through that. Well, the first step in in that process is to determine is it truly an outbreak. 
So just because we have a lot of hospital-acquired cases that have been identified through the process that I described earlier, which is really just a time-limited um, definition, uh, so we'd be looking to see if our if our standard work, our standard processes have been interrupted with uh, specimen collection. Was it an inappropriate specimen? You know, so we'd be looking at all of those to determine if these truly were hospital-acquired infections. If they were, and they all were occurring in a in a unit, particularly one like Hemoc, um, we would be going and doing direct observations to see their hand hygiene. Uh, we'd be interviewing EVS and talking to the EVS technicians about their cleaning processes, being sure they hadn't changed products, that they were using bleach. Um, we'd look at equipment movement and how it's, it's, it's cleaned. Uh, so you're going to be looking at a lot of processes related to, to C. diff and also things like it, um, uh, just movement of patients, were, was, the, was the room, did we have time to adequately clean the room before we put another patient in there? Uh, so there's just a lot of processes that you would be looking at with a C. diff uh, infection. And of course, hand hygiene would be uh, at the top of the list. PPE, uh, are we wearing the appropriate PPE? And, and, and then, of course, if they were all in one area, we would uh, make the determination whether or not that area had needed to be um, uh, all the patients removed and terminally cleaned. I've had to do that on a few occasions so, uh, and just kind of start over with a clean slate. So it, it, C. diff is one that you're looking at a lot of environmental factors and a lot of um, behavioral factors with hand hygiene and PPE, things like that. Well, I know we're running low on time, but I, I did want to ask one, one final question. You know, you mentioned earlier that about one in 30 patients that it comes into the hospital will get a hospital-acquired infection, which, you know, that number sounds really, really high to me, uh, you know, because you have a one in 30 chance getting an infection that, one, it could kill you. Um, most of these will at least uh, prolong your hospital stay, make you receive unnecessary antibiotics, uh, this, that, and the other, uh, which could ultimately increase your cost if you were a patient. Um, what do you see as the, the biggest barriers to really driving that number down? Well, as I was saying, some of these MDROs particularly are, uh, patients are colonized with these. And so a lot of times, particularly like in MRSA, uh, many, many, many cases of MRSA, in fact, the vast majority come from the patient's own they're endogenous. So, um, you know, I'm carrying this around, I'm colonized with it, and now you're putting, giving me a central line and a Foley and ventilating me, and now I'll, that's going to make me sick. So, adequately identifying people who come into our, into our hospitals that are high-risk groups um, for ESBLs, for CRE, for MRSA, um, long-term care patients, people from um, institutional settings, uh, just uh, dialysis patients. There's a lot of high-risk groups, and I think we could, um, as a whole, all, all healthcare organizations uh, could do a better job of doing a more thorough uh, H&P and looking at identifying these high-risk groups, high groups uh, so that we can have some sort of intervention 
uh, or at least monitor more closely. Um, here at Baptist, of course, we have just embarked on our MRSA decolonization initiative, which will be very important in driving down MRSA cases. We know most of them are community acquired. And um, so when they come into our hospital, though, uh, in that they're colonized with it. Um, and so when they come into our hospital, going through that process of nasal and body decolonization routinely with high-risk patients in the ICU um, will be impactful in preventing SSIs, clapsies, caudies, ventilator-associated pneumonia that, uh, from MRSA. So, so that's an example of, of something that we can do proactively to prevent hospital-acquired infections. That's good. So I, I never really thought about it that way. So a lot of these hospital-acquired infections start off as colonization in the patient, but because of the interventions, because of the environment we put that patient in, those colonizations for that patient become hospital-acquired infections that are more systemic. Okay, that's, that's helpful. Henry, do you have any closing comments or last thoughts? No, I, 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 think, I think the audience can very much appreciate the expertise that Marianne brings to our organization. We certainly are grateful for what she is doing with helping us battle uh, infection control. It is, it is a, it's a daily challenge. Uh, and I just want to thank Marianne first for uh, sharing some of her expertise with, with the two of us and our audience, but also for the work that she's doing and, and all the IPs across our, our system and want, want to uh, celebrate the week with them. They, they are invaluable to us, Jake, and, and we hope that they are enjoying the recognition that is certainly due to them this week. Thank you. And Marianne, any last words for the audience? I just want to echo Dr. Sullivan's uh, shout out to the infection preventionists. They have worked tirelessly during the pandemic and every day. And uh, so I just am privileged to work with them and uh, in keeping patients safe every day. So thank you for uh, interviewing me on this important topic. Well, thank you for joining us. And, and thank you, everyone, for listening to Right Care at Baptist. I, I did want to give a shout out to Hank Sullivan. Uh, Henry's son, who recorded our intro and outro music. And if you are interested in, in earning some CME credit for this episode, remember to go to the show notes and find the link to the survey. Thank you so much.